This is Truth Talks. We open us in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for the privilege to assemble tonight for the sole purpose of striving for holiness. That's what this is all about, Lord. We are seeking to be faithful men of God. You have called us to pursue godliness, kill wickedness, and ultimately, in so doing, delight in the Lord Christ. And so we pray that tonight would be effective in that. Lord, I ask, as I have been praying, that you would break our hearts. Lord, we are men who are uh, struggling on many levels, some known, oftentimes unknown, with pride, self, um, idols of the heart that are self-exalting, arrogance, wickedness we don't even know, Lord, but you're revealing that slowly but steadily through this class. And as hard as it is, Lord, it is a blessing to be able to see ourselves rightly. Like Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, Lord, we stand with him and said, say, woe is me. We are uh, a group of men of unclean lips and an unclean hearts. And so, Father, we pray that as we are beginning to recognize that in very intimate, personal ways, that you would purify us, that you would cleanse us, that you would give us clean hands and a pure heart. And like David, Lord, prayed in Psalm 51, we would pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation that you would equip us to be teachers and proclaimers of truth, that we might teach others the fear of the Lord. May uh, this class be just one step further in the pursuit of bringing you glory. That is our greatest delight. That's our greatest privilege in this world, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to uh, fulfill that with great delight in our hearts, for you are worthy. Bless us now in these endeavors, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we always do, let's, uh, we'll start out with the major meditation points from chapter 5, just as a review from where we were last week, just as a kind of a, a refresher, a reminder to encourage us and get our uh, cerebral juices flowing. Uh, last week, uh, we started out understanding and grappling with the undeniable connection between the physical body and the heart. And that was kind of just an intro. He talked about it in the chapter, uh, the beginning of chapter 5, about this, the physical and the spiritual, and how the physical and the spiritual are united, right? Your physical body and your spiritual life are united. They feed off one another, especially in sin, right? So your eyes, your physical body, your, your eyes, your, your uh, feet, your hands will often provoke sin in your heart, i.e. open up doorways for it entice it. And so he was bringing out that reality that we are a complex unity of spirit and body. And therefore, uh, that comes up even in, to, in today's lesson, this reality of, of, of the person who is the self-rewarder. He will often uh, be motivated into sexual sin because he thinks he deserves it, because he's worked hard. And often that goes hand in hand when a, when a, when a, a minister is exhausted, he's worked hard, and it's kind of like his reward. I've worked really hard, and now my body's tired, and so I'm going to reward myself with some pornography or, or, or an adulterous affair or whatever. And it, that's even ties together that physical reality and the spiritual. And so we see this inseparable link between our physical body and the heart, uh, the immaterial and the material. 
Number two, at the core of all sexual sin is a covetous heart, one ruled by sensual, self-seeking greed. That's at the core, man, and we've been learning this, you've been seeing it. Greed is at the core, the foundation to all sexual sin. As a matter of fact, it's the foundation to all sin, if we're going to be honest, right? And that's our problem. I've said it, I don't know if I've said it in this context, but I've... uh, no doubt heard it from somebody else, but it's stuck in my mind, and I latched onto it somewhere. But without question, we are greedy. We are glory thieves. We are greedy for the glory that God has, and we want it, and we don't like it. And so we're constantly going after that which is His and taking it from Him and bringing it to ourselves. That's what we do. We do it all the time in many different ways. And uh, at the core of sexual sin... Colossians chapter 3, you've heard me say this, we've looked at it. Colossians chapter 3 starts from the external act of sexual sin and works its way all the way back to the internal root and foundation. And what is it? It starts out sexual immorality, it goes to impurity, it goes to sensuality, and then it ultimately ends in what? Greed, covetousness, idolatry. He says, and then idolatry, which is covetousness, which is just another fancy term for greed. That's at the heart of it, man. And again, if you're going to kill sexual immorality like we're commanded to in Colossians 3, 5, then you have to kill what's feeding it, right? It's like the weeds. I've been talking about this a lot. I sent you the picture of the roots. Hopefully you guys got that, right? And if you're going to kill the weeds in your yard, the Roundup thing, it doesn't really work, okay? And you get cancer from that. So just forget it, all right? So the point being with that, there is no shortcuts, Right? You can't spray some Roundup on your sexual immorality and think that's going to do away with it. It won't. You've got to pull it. You've got to pull it from the root level. You've got to get it out. And so it is with this. How do you do it? How do you pull sexual immorality at the root level? It's not your computer. It's your covetous heart. You go after it at the heart level, after this, this covetous, greedy heart that's not content with what you have. And you go there, and that's how you kill it. Kill the covetousness in your life, and the sexual immorality will die. That's how it works. It's, that's what we're learning, and what a blessing that is. Number three, unholy anger can be a heart motivation for sexual sin as it seeks compensation for a perceived loss. We learned that last week how anger can actually be the motivator for sexual sin. As, as we have this idea that we, we didn't get what we deserved, we, we were held back from something that we, we should have earned or been given, and therefore that motivates us to go after it oftentimes in sexual sin. Number four, this is another heart motivator, self-pity is always rooted in pride and driven by what you personally think you do or do not deserve. So if anger is more of the proactive, aggressive, I'm going after something I wasn't given, self-pity is more the negative or the passive that kind of recoils because of something I was given, which tends to be abuse or whatever, right? Somebody says something and we recoil into this self-pity mode and oftentimes that motivates to sexual sin. Number five, discontentment is a natural fallen heart inclination because of the depraved desires of man are never satisfied. Had a long conversation with somebody this afternoon I was counseling with, and uh, we were talking about this. 
and uh, this individual cycling through some serious sins for years. And we were talking about the fact that it doesn't matter what route they took. It never satisfied. I mean, that's, that's reality. We have to wake up to that. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Number six, discontentment is a grievous sin because at its core is a heart dissatisfied with God. Think about that, right? None of us would ever stand up and say that, right? But that's, the, that's at the heart issue. When you're discontent, especially, right, especially when you're indulging in some sort of immorality, whether it's self-satisfaction of self-pleasure with yourself or whether it's pornography or whether it's an affair or whether it's whatever, ultimately you're, you're, it's a heart of discontentment, especially if you're married, right? And ultimately it's you're discontent with God. God, you can't satisfy me. You haven't fulfilled me. You haven't given me what I want, so I'm going somewhere else. That is an unbelievable wicked heart that would say, God, you're, you can't satisfy. He's the God of all the earth. In him, there's no lack. He has everything. And to think that some make-believe woman who's been airbrushed on a page or on some computer is somehow going to satisfy you compared to the God of all the earth, that's the stupidity of sin. Never forget, the S in sin stands for stupid, right? It will make you think stupid thoughts, do stupid things, act stupid ways. That's what it stands for. My, my kids, they know it. I say it all the time. Stupid. Right? That's what sin will do every single time. Number seven, the fear of man and circumstances is driven by a lack of trust or fear in the Lord. The fear of man and circumstances is driven by a lack of trust or fear in the Lord. Fear can often be a um, motivator for sexual sin. Often. This, this comes up a lot. Where fear of what? Fear of approval. You want to be approved in your peer group at school, right? You see this with college or high school. You want to be approved, so what do you do? You become part of the, of the group, right, that's having, you know, sex with one another, and then you find out half the group wasn't even having sex. They were just lying about it. But you indulge and give your virginity away for whatever reason. Why? Because you just want to be part of the group. Fear of approval comes up all the time. Uh, uh, a girl who... Uh, or a guy for that matter, wants to be married and they're in their mid-20s and they feel like their time clock is ticking away by way of their biological time clock. And so it's like, I just, I got to find a mate. And so they go out and what? They compromise just to try to latch on to somebody. And there they are. What? What's driving that whole thing is fear. Fear. And you start to see that's the motivator behind the sexual sin. That's what needs to be killed is this fear. So helpful that last week's uh, lessons so helpful, as is this week's. All right, so we turn the corner, and we start now on chapter six, and we'll finish up on chapter seven tonight. Um, so so helpful. Page one. We've already looked at the major motivations from last week. Last week's lesson, we looked at um, the um, the hurting heart, right? And the hurting heart always seeks what? Do you remember? It starts with an S. Sol solace, right? It always seeks solace. It always seeks comfort. The hurting heart is going after trying to console, console itself, and, and sex is one of the major ways in which the hurting heart does that. And of course, that's why we looked at uh, self-pity, anger. Those are the motivators of the hurting heart, right? So now we're not looking at the hurting heart. We're looking at what? The hungering heart. 
which is different. And the hungering heart doesn't go after solace. And this is the one I think if we're honest, most of us are going to connect with most clearly. The, hurt, the hurting heart goes after solace. The hungering heart goes after what? Satisfaction, right? It wants satisfaction. And that's the driving motivator behind the hungering heart. According to the author, what is the main motto in life for most people? This was on page 147. Do you remember that? The main motto in life is this. And this shows you, right, this speaks clearly that most people are driven by this motivation, or should I say, most people have a hungering heart because this is their motive. And what is the motive of their life, including all of us here, if we're going to be honest? What is it on page? Go ahead, Walt. To live my life for my own satisfaction, right? That, look, would you agree with that? Of course you would, right? You may not nod your head, but in your heart, you know it's true, right? We come into this world. That's why every single baby comes into this world. What? Feed me, change me, love me, hold me. It's all about me, right? And it's not until about three years old that they start to wake up and realize, no, it's not about you, right? It's about God and it's about this family, but it's not about you. But every child, we're born that way, right? Because why? Think about it now. Don't miss the connection. Why are we that way? Because we're sons of who? The devil. And what is his whole life driven by from the beginning? Him, satisfaction. I don't want to be the greatest angel. I want to be God, right? I'm not content with this position. I've got to go all the way to the top, right? So his children, which is everyone, is what? Going to take on his DNA, his characteristics. And so you start to see this. And that's who we are. And so we're, 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 we're all given this by our sin nature. And we all, sadly, we all nurture it and feed it and grow it. And it's really, really scary. On your notes, it says, read these scriptures and explain why that life pursuit is futile at best and will ultimately lead to despair and delight. All right, so uh, Lord willing, you read some of those verses. Uh, give them to me. Tell me why the life motto of I'm going to live my life for my satisfaction is at best futile. Proverbs 27, 20 says what? Let's go through some of these. Who's, who's going to read that one for us? Go ahead, Walt, read that one. Be ready, uh, somebody with Ecclesiastes 1.8. Who's got that? Rob's got that. Somebody be ready with Ecclesiastes 4.7. Tim's got that. Um, let's read Hosea 4.10. Who's got that? Dustin's got that. Um, let's do uh, Matthew 5.6. That's a good one. Okay, he's got that. Um, Let's, uh, let's stop right there. We'll stop with it right there. Who's got Proverbs 27? Ecclesiastes. Hosea. Mm. 
Mm. Matthew 5. Now, think about it, man. Think about if we just embraced the truth in these passages, how it would change our lives drastically as we deal with sin, especially sexual sin. So in these passages, it says, the life motto that says, I'm going to live for my own satisfaction, pretty much says what? That's a pursuit you will never accomplish. That's a job you will never find the end to. That is, who, who rides down the road and just starts taking $100 bills and chucking them out the window, right? Who would do that? First of all, who has $100 bills to chuck out the window? That would, maybe, maybe that's the better question. But if you had it, right, if you had just, just, just some extra money and you're just riding down the road and you're just like, doesn't this feel good? That is exactly what it's like trying to find satisfaction in anything other than Christ because that's all you're doing. You're wasting life. You're wasting resources. It is a complete and, and utter futility. Now, imagine if that was your perspective the next time you started to go down that path of whatever that thing is that you're going to pursue, right? Whether it's the woman, whether it's the, the, the bigger house or whatever it is that you're, you're pursuing thinking, this is going to satisfy me. Like, I, I, I need this next thing. Imagine if we just had that truth seared into my brain going, well, it's not even, it may not even be that whatever you're pursuing is wrong. And it's not wrong to have a bigger house. That's nothing wrong with that. But it's utterly wrong if you think that's going to bring you satisfaction. That's what makes it wrong. It is, why? Whatever satisfies you, whatever your pursuit of satisfaction is, has become your idol. It has become your pleasure. That's what makes it wrong. And it's, the scripture is clear. Now watch this. This is so helpful. Uh, somebody look up Jeremiah 2, 11 to 13. Who's got that? Go ahead, Brian. Read that for us. This is a powerful passage, especially as it deals with what we're talking about. What is Jeremiah talking about here? In Jeremiah 2, 11 to 13, explain. He's talking about Israel. Now, what is he saying when he says they have hewn out broken cisterns? Just think about what we just read in all these passages. Now, you explain to me the analogy that the master prophet Jeremiah is doing when he's explaining what Israel has done. You explain it. First of all, what is a cistern? Let's get this clear. Holds water. It's like, it's, it's like a water tank, okay? Usually it, it would hold I, my first house I bought, West Virginia. Not only did it come with its own outhouse, which was uh, fun, but it came with its own massive cistern, right? Very common there. All the gutters drain into the cistern, right? And that's where your water came from. My kitchen sink that, in my first house had this sweet hand pump, right, on the kitchen sink. Man, it was awesome, right? <laughs> Pumped up from the cistern. There you go. So you guys didn't, you didn't believe me I was from West Virginia. That's West Virginia, right? Outhouse, the whole deal, man. Grass always grew well around the outhouse. 
Yeah, once I got married, that house didn't last. But anyway, that's a story for another day. But what, so he's talking about this, this container that holds water. But how does Isaiah, des- or Jeremiah describe it? It's what? Broken. Will not hold. What is his point? What is it, wh- who is he comparing the broken cistern to? Or what is he comparing the broken cistern to? Well, he... No. No. Israel has done what? They have forsaken God. Okay? These are the two things they've done. They have forsaken God. They've turned their back on God. And what have they turned to? They've turned to the broken cistern. Okay? God is the living waters. Right? That's what he says. He is the living. What does living water do? It satisfies. Living water satisfies. You can't get enough of it. It fills you up. It energizes you. It sustains you. That's God. So they've rejected the living water for gutter water that can't even be held to this container that won't even hold storm water. Okay? It's broken. And ultimately, it's referring to what? The idols that they've turned to. Their own idolatry. And he's comparing it to broken cisterns that won't even hold water, let alone satisfy you. It's a phenomenal analogy that I pray, and I'm taking time to belabor this, that you just get seared into your brain. The next time that that woman or, or that thought or whatever it is comes up on the screen, that you just see broken cistern. That this is just, just like a broken vein. It will not satisfy me. No matter what my heart or no matter what my stomach is telling me right now, this is a broken cistern. It's futile. And that's what Israel didn't get. They reject the living God and walk away into these broken cisterns. Now, somebody read John 7, 37 and watch the connection. Go ahead. Say that again. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So somebody read John 737. Go ahead, Caleb. Watch this. Watch the connection and think, what is Jesus talking about? He is what? Jesus is the living waters. Listen. Israel knew exactly what he was talking about when he calls himself the living water. He's going right back to what Jeremiah said and said, listen, I'm not a broken cistern. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I satisfy. Drink of me, which he goes on in the verse. Read verse 38, Caleb. Read verse, watch 38. There you go, right? It is a living water. It is a sustaining water. It is a water that propels life, generates life, creates life. Jesus Christ satisfies. That's the point. And Jesus Christ is not the broken cistern. He is, as Jeremiah said of God, the living water, right? Because he's God in the flesh. Jesus is quoting or alluding right back to Jeremiah 2, right here in this passage in John 7. That's what he's talking about when he calls himself the living water. And Israel would have been provoked in heart 
But of course, Israel at that point had replaced God with their formalism, their moralism in the Judaism of the day, which was an utter broken cistern. Now, Solomon speaks of the futility of pursuing self-satisfaction as vanity of of vanities. What does that word vanity mean in Ecclesiastes? And did anybody look in Ecclesiastes how many times it's used? There you go. Over 30 times, 37 when you pull in vanity of vanities and vanity, all the different forms of vanity, right? What is Ecclesiastes, 12 chapters? So it's not a massive book. He uses the same word 37 times. I think he's trying to drive a point. Now, what does the word mean? Go ahead, Caleb. Empty. Absolutely. What else? That's a, that's a really good. Useless. Useless. Absolutely. What else? Vapor. That's in the Hebrew. The Hebrew original word literally means vapor or breath. Like go out on a cold day, right? And you breathe and you, and you remember as your kid, you like to blow the holes or whatever when you're out on the cold day and you see your breath. And what? As soon as you get it to where it's like this perfect shape, whatever you're doing, and then it's gone. Fleeting. It's fleeting. It's worthless. Soap bubbles, I think, is the perfect analogy, right? Soap bubbles. It, it's up there, right? And you, some, well, most of the time, but before you even get to it, it's gone. You poke it, it's gone. That's what Solomon is saying. With all of these things, they're just vapor. It's just vapor. It's futile. Empty. Will not satisfy. Will not satisfy at all. So at the end of uh, all of Solomon's learning, um, he ultimately realized what life was all about, and it was about what? It wasn't about pleasing self. It wasn't about pursuing satisfaction. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, it's about what? Fearing the Lord, obeying His commands. That's it. That's the life. That's the life that's satisfied. That's the life that you have been given. That's what he teaches or seeks to teach and seeks to reiterate to us. Um, I gave you a diatribe of verses there at the end of that first paragraph. And in those verses are some powerful truths. How do these truths protect you from the deception of a hungering heart that is propelled in the only direction where true delight is found? In these verses, I gave you a bunch. Somebody uh, tell me, what did you learn looking up some of those verses? Psalm 1611 says what? It's a very good Psalm of David. It's the last verse in this Psalm of David. And David says what? Where does David find pleasure? Yes. At your right hand, O God, are pleasures forevermore. Right? David says, I'll be only satisfied in you. Right? Psalm 90. There, 9014. What? Psalm, yes, the steadfast love of the Lord. It, the Lord himself is our satisfaction. We find our satisfaction in him. Remember, Jeremiah 2, he's the living water. He's the point of satisfaction. Somebody read Psalm 103, verses 1 to 5. This is just so helpful. Someone who's got that. Go ahead, Walt. There it is. Did you, did you hear it? And I love that passage because it starts out with rejoicing, which is rejoicing is nothing more than remembering. 
bringing back to mind the goodness of God in the gospel and what he does for us in his forgiveness and in his care and all those things. And at the end of it, right, that's where the satisfaction is found. And it's a renewable, right? It's renewable, meaning it renews the heart. It, it encourages the life. And it's all about God and what he's done and what he's brought. And that's where the satisfaction is found. We already read Matthew 5, 6, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, what, shall be satisfied, filled. They shall be satisfied. Think about it. It's, it's, again, I love Scripture. It's like this conundrum, this tension. How can the person who hungers and thirsts be satisfied? Do you see the, do you see the anomaly there? Do you see the, the tension? If you hunger and thirst, you hunger and thirst because you're not satisfied, Right? But that's the nature of, of our Lord, right? You hunger and thirst because you recognize, I don't have it. I can't get it. I can't produce it, this righteousness that I need. But I'm hungering and thirsting for the one who can give it to me, and that's only God. It's Psalm 42 all over again. As the deer pants for the water brooks, right? He, what does the deer want? I've seen this so many times. I won't tell you what else I've done when I've seen this, but I've seen it so many times with the tongue hanging out, especially in early season, <laughs> and they're hungering. They are thirsting. They want water, right? And they're going for the water because they need it. They long it. And that's the, that's the picture that David is promoting here. And as the deer pants, thirsts, hungers for the water, so my soul pants after you, after you, O oh Lord. I mean, it's satisfaction. I want to drink of you. Oh, listen, man, I've been telling you this from beginning, and I'm thankful to be at this point where I can remind you again. You fight lust in your heart with the love of the Lord. This, that's how you do it. You get yourself to a point where you pant after God, where you hunger and thirst after Him. How do you do that? I'm glad you asked. You do that by growing in your understanding of who He is. You do that in growing in your understanding of what he said. You do that by growing in your understanding of what he's done. You do that by growing in your understanding of what he will do. You just keep growing in all of this work of the Lord. You keep growing in all of this glory of Christ. Listen, it pains my heart. I, just as a moment of transparency, I was working through these lessons this afternoon, and I was on this first uh, section right here. And I just broke down and started crying. Because I'm sitting here reading this and going, how in the world can I be tempted for soap bubbles when I've got the glory of Christ? When I've got the King of Kings, who is all satisfying, we'll see it in a minute, who dwells within me, the living water. And I'm like floating out here wanting to find soap bubbles. It's like, are you kidding me? It broke my heart. I mean, it's, that's how you fight this, by seeing Christ for who he is. Remember, listen, let's just get really basic but really clear. Remember, Satan's ultimate ploy is to do what? To cover the eyes from seeing what? The glory of who? 2 Corinthians 4. Somebody read it. 2 Corinthians 4, 1, 2, 6. Somebody open it up. Watch this. Satan's ultimate ploy, his ultimate goal, because he knows this has to be stopped or he has no chance. 2 Corinthians 4. Somebody read it. Start at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry of the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. For he has announced his faithful in this universe, and he has practiced cunning, he has handled with God's word, but by the 
open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it veiled to those who are perishing. Watch it. Watch it. Go ahead. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. From what? From seeing what? Now, listen, this is huge, this is massive, especially for me as a preacher. Satan's ultimate ploy is to blind the eyes from seeing the glory of Christ. He holds back man from seeing the glory of Christ. And what does Paul then do in ministry? What is his ultimate endeavor? To preach, declare, display what, James? What does he say? The glory of Christ. Do you see it? So Paul fights and goes right after it with what? The very thing that Satan is trying to hinder everybody from seeing is how great Christ is. And so the pastor doesn't get up and say how great he is or how great you are. That's not his job. He gets up and says, let me show you and let me declare to you. Let me point out how great Christ is because it's in that that your life has changed. So what happens when you lose sight of that and you're finding whatever that fetish or that pleasure or whatever it is that you're dealing with that's pulling you away? you've got to get back to seeing Christ for who he is you've been blinded again by your own hands often and so you've got to find Christ in his glory again and where do you go to see that you go right back to the scriptures and you go right back to the gospel because it's in the gospel that the glory of Christ shines brightly and that's what we're doing and that's the endeavor and that's how you fight lust at the heart level it all comes down to Christ Sorry for preaching, but. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that, Greg. It's uh, interesting when you go back in the prophets, one of the things you find out that one of the curses of God, and this is scary, one of the curses of God is that he will, he will send a drought upon a people for what? Are you ready? For the preaching of the word. He will send a drought among the people where they will no longer hunger, drought, famine, where they will no longer hunger and thirst for the word. And the word does what? It feeds the soul. And they will no longer want it. They'll no longer thirst for it. They'll no longer desire. It's part of, it's part of the curse of God. It's what he did with his people. That's why they wanted the prophets to speak to them, the evil prophets and not the good prophets, right? That was part of it. That's exactly what we see in our day. 
So people today, and, and I see this as a pastor, I see it as they walk in the door. So many times, and some of you have even told me this, they come in the door and I talk with them, and you know what they say? They're here three, four weeks, three months, however long it is, and they're like, I was so hungry and I didn't know it. I was so thirsty for truth and I didn't know it. And now I'm being fed again and it's like overwhelming. I didn't even realize, right? So it's happening, right? We don't even know it because we're being fed junk food and we're being fed what our hearts want. And it's, it's really scary. It's really scary. It's really sad. All right, number two. I'm sorry, I'm just going to, we're never going to get through this tonight. Um, number two, how can the pursuit of self-reward, here we go. Now we're, we, we got the hungering heart, it searches for satisfaction. Here's the motivations under the hungering heart. The first one, self-reward, right? How can the pursuit of self-reward for extraordinary dedication and service as, serve as a motivation to any sin, especially sexual sin? How can this idea of self-reward for what would be dedicated service to the Lord or, or anything serve as a motivator for sexual sin? You tell me. Yes, very good, James. You feel like you deserve it, right? You feel like, hey, man, look at that. I worked hard. I, sacri- I took a week off of work to go with pastor to Japan. And, and, you know, man, we labored and we did this or whatever it is that you did. And now you come back and you're just like, all right, yeah, now I can take a little break. I've, I've got 10 brownie points over here. And all right, my count over here is pretty clean. So I can go over and mingle with this sin. And I'm, I'm pretty good. Scary, right? This, this comes up quite a bit. Somebody read Luke 17, 7 to 10. This is an eye-opening passage. If you didn't read this, you missed out, but you're going to get it now. Luke 17, 7 to 10. Who's got that? Go ahead, Caleb. Watch this. What's he saying? How does this kill the self-rewarder's mindset? What is, it, what is he saying? Is there any such thing as self-reward? What, I mean, what does the text just explicitly clear? Who are you to think that you earn something when you're just doing what you're commanded to do? I mean, the text is crystal clear. He even says, right, you're, just a, you're an unworthy servant. I love it, right? Dulos even uses slave there. You're just an unworthy slave. Who are you to think that you're worth something, that you've earned something, when all you're doing is what you're supposed to do? See, that's, and we've adopted this mindset in America. Trust me, this, is, this plagues our churches. Like somehow we think, because we come to church every Sunday, well, I've earned a week off, right? It's like, really? I mean, the Bible commands us to not forsake the assembling together, Right? Well, you know, I've been loving my wife for 25 years. I'm due. I'm, I'm due. Listen, I have heard this as a pastor. People sitting in my office. Pastor, I have been so faithful to my wife. She hasn't done this, this, or this. I've earned this. Really? Really? 
The Bible commands you to do that. Right on you. You've been following the Bible. Good. You've been following Scripture. Good. That's it. Right? You haven't earned anything. And it's amazing how we get our minds so deceived to thinking that somehow being faithful to the Lord earns us right to be sinful. And this is the mindset of the self-rewarder. The Bible just, just smashes that. I love that passage where Jesus is like, listen, you don't get any special reward. You're just doing what you're supposed to do. I saved you to do this. Now go do it. I love it when he, when he uses the analogy. The servant's out in the field all day. No master who owns a servant comes in and says, here, go ahead and eat first and then I'll eat. No, go change your clothes, do your job, serve me, and then after that, then you can eat. And Jesus, it's his field. It's his tools. That's it. That's it. And anything that the servant does is because of the master. So it is with us. If we are faithful at all, which that would be an arrogant statement for any of us to say, that we're not twinned with sin in everything that we do. But if we're faithful at all in what we do, it's we boast in the Lord, not in us. Like Paul said, what do you have that you have not received? Like where is your boasting? Even the skills you have, I've given them to you. Even the desire you have to get up and go to church, I've given that to you. Even the wife you have, I've given that to you. The children you have, I've given. The job you have, I've given. I mean, it's like, that's how arrogant we are to think that somehow we are, we are making ourselves this. It's all a work of God. So the self-rewarder is, in every way, as the, text, as the list of questions goes on, he's just really self-deceived. He's utterly self-deceived. Uh, it goes on in the text. Read these passages and write down what motivated Christ as you ask yourself if Jesus was a self-rewarder, right? Um, Matthew 4, 1 to 11, we won't read that passage because it's a long one, but what's it about? Some of you know this. What's that passage about? That's the temptations of Christ. Three times he makes it very clear what motivates him, right? We'll look at, we'll, we'll, we'll say it in a minute. Somebody read John 6, 38. Who's got that? This is, this is, you got it? John 6, 38. Who's got uh, John 8, 50? Go ahead, Talon. Who's got John uh, 12, 27 to 28? Go ahead. Who's got um, John 17, 1 to 5? This is a good one. James got that. And who's got Matthew 26, 39? Okay, Dustin's got that. Go ahead and read them. Who's got them? Okay, 850. 12, 27 to 28. Mm. Go ahead, James. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lift up, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Matthew 26. 39. 
So is Jesus a self-rewarder? <laughs> what motivated Christ? Doing the Father's will, right? Glorifying the Father, praising the Father, worshiping the Father, pleasing the Father, serving the Father. Do you see it? Do you, do you get what motivated him? Go ahead. Abs you got it. That's, not, that, that's it. That's it, Morgan. You nailed it, right? The reward is pleasing the Master. Right? That's Paul's point, which he's going to say in, in a minute. But that's the whole point of, of the, the faithful stewards, right? Their reward, right? They were given the talents. We looked at this a few weeks ago in church. They doubled the talents. What was their reward ultimately? The accolades from the master when he says, well done, good and faith. All they wanted to do was please him. And this is where that analogy where Jesus uses it often with kids and salvation, Right? Isn't that, isn't that so encouraging with our children? Now, usually when they're younger, when they get teenagers, they lose this. And then by God's grace, they hopefully circle back around. But when they're younger, what? They're just such a drive to please their parents, right? You see it. And that's why you've got to be careful sometimes when they pray a sinner's prayer or something because oftentimes they're just trying to please the parents. They haven't really, they haven't really repented. They don't even know what that means. They haven't really trusted in, in Jesus as Lord. They don't know what that means. But they know what you're doing and they see how, how you love the Lord. And so they'll do that to try to please you. And there's, there's so much in that. Is, that's us. As our, that should be us with our Heavenly Father. And like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, what? I do everything to please him. That's the reward at the end of the day. That's why at the end of the day, when the believers get their crowns, their accolades from the Lord, when we finally see him face to face, what are we going to do with all them at the end of the day? Are we going to keep them and walk around? You know, Tim, you got 10 crowns, but I got 12, man. Look at mine. Mine, look at here. Is that what we're going to do? No. What are we going to do? We're going to give them all back. Because why? Why are we going to do that? Because there's greater joy in giving it to, back to Christ than it is in us keeping it. That's it. Why not? Why wait till then? Why not do it now? Why not be living that way now and just keep giving him everything? That's the way we're commanded to live. That's the greatest reward. You nailed it, Morgan. That's the greatest pleasure in life. That's the greatest delight. Some of you may be thinking, well, really? That's our life? Like, like, we just got to serve the master, and it's all about him, and it's all about him, and it's all about him. If you're thinking that, you're utterly missing it. Because here's the deal. You don't know the master. The fact that we get to serve the master. The fact that we get to know the master. The fact that we get to be as wicked slaves as we are, we get to be the conduit of bringing him praise. I can't even fathom that. That we, our sinful lives, bring him pleasure. That blows my mind. I've told you this, if you're here under the preaching, Colossians 3.20. It's one of the first verses children should memorize. When I sign our birthday cards for all our kids, I put it on every one of them. Even your kids who get it and can't even read yet, I'm putting it on there. Colossians 3.20, right? We often get this verse wrong. It goes like this. Children, obey your parents in everything. That's how we usually teach it. We stop it. The verse doesn't stop there. You've cut off the best part of the whole verse. The whole point of the verse is not them obeying the parents. It's what? What comes next? For this pleases the Lord. Teaching your children to do what they do out of the joy of just pleasing the Lord. 
That's how we're to live our whole life. That's the greatest joy in life. But again, we've lost sight of that. Why? Because we've lost sight of the glory of the master. And if we're honest, we've lost sight of the despicable nature of the slave. See, when you elevate the slave to a place of glory, you lower the master to a place of mediocrity. Why would you find pleasure in serving a master who's really not that great? And honestly, why would you find joy in serving a master when you're really that great? You see how it all plays out in the contemporary model, psychologized model where you're great. You really don't need that much. You just need a little shove. You just need a little power punch. You just need a little steroid shot. You'll be all right. Yeah, it totally cuts the legs out of biblical truth. Yeah, for sure. Um, Let's move on. Number three. We'll leave that alone. After reading chapter five, explains how flattery. So we've seen how self-reward drives sexual sin. Now let's talk about flattery. Flattery and praise often nourish sexual lust and serve as another motivation for the hungering heart. How is that? How does flattery and, and, and uh, selfish praise motivate the hungering heart to sexual lust? You explain to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it deceives, right? Yep, absolutely. What what is flattery? Define it. Okay, that's a it's lying. Very good. <laughs> a flattery is just a specialized form of lying. It's all it is, right? Go ahead, Caleb. Puffing up. Yep. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for writing that down because at the end of the day, the flatterer, this is the scary part about flatterer. The flatterer does not have you in mind. They have who in mind? Themselves. Very scary. Very, very scary. Yep. It was the nurse. Is the nurse. Yeah, the nurse. Yeah, that happens all the time where the nurse was. Did you guys read that in the book? So the nurse, he was counseling, a, a nurse that came in for counseling, and she was talking about this reality, and she was a nurse, and she was having a hard time at home with her husband who was not um, not a godly man, not treating her well, abusive, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then long comes the doctor, right, or in the shift. He starts flattering her, right? All the things she, quote-unquote, is not getting at home. And she starts, what, gets sucked into the flattery. Next thing you know, they're on a, a work trip somewhere for a weekend. And she ends up sleeping with them. What happens next? The guy can't be found, right? Every time she does see him now in the hospital, it's a short, snippy. All of a sudden, what happens then? He starts to treat her like her husband did at home. Abusive, making, condescending. Yeah, I mean, it's dangerous, right? This happens all the time. He got what he wanted, absolutely, absolutely. So the, uh, why is this term, uh, why is the person who's searching for flattery not a self-esteem issue? 
Why is that? Because that's what secular psychology or the world would say. Well, if you're hungering for flattery and praise, then you have a low self-esteem. Is that really true? Yes. Why, Jim? Yeah. So you're searching for flattery because you what? You think you... Absolutely. It has nothing to do with a low self-esteem. It has everything to do with you think you've earned it. You think you've deserved. Listen, let me, just, let me just be really clear. As pastors, this is one of the biggest pitfalls, right? i got to be careful here. I stand in the back every Sunday, not for this reason, but to shepherd people and to make myself available to encourage if somebody has a question or whatever. And, and, and it never ceases to, to not happen. And most of the time it's genuine, but not always. I call it the, and Howard Hendricks called it this, and I'm, he's dead now, so I can borrow it. But he's a master teacher. But, well, try to, safer. But <laughs> it's right. They won't talk back. <laughs> Howard Hendricks called it when the pastor's in the back and people are leaving. You know what he called it? He called it the exaltation of the worm. People are coming by. That's the greatest sermon I ever heard, Pastor. And you're sitting there, and this happens every time. You're like, really? Because I thought it was pretty ter- terrible, right? And so it's this reality that it just happens all the time. But let me tell you, pastors feed on that, right? I preached that sermon. Come on, let's go. Come on. And they search people out that they know are going to feed it. It's a major problem, not just with pastors, but managers, bosses, whatever, right? People over people. Man, I gave you that raise. What do, you, what do you think? Come on, tell me. Tell me how good I am. Come on, let me hear it. I mean, this is, happens all the time. Scary stuff. It's sinful to the core. You, but Pastor, you do have to allow for true of course. No, no, no. That's why I said I had to be careful. Yeah. No, I appreciate all the love. And I, most of the time. Yes, most of the time. <laughs> Yeah. Listen. Yeah. No. No. I. I. I get it, and that's why I said most of the time it's genuine, but not always. I've had. I've had people leave this church who have come back and filled my ears with the greatest praise, and I'm sitting there looking at them, going, "I know exactly what this is." And two weeks later, they're out of here talking about me down the church down the street. The flattering tongue happens. Happens. Scary. Wicked. Right. That's the way it works. Scary, right? So you have to guard against your heart from, from being a type of person that goes in search of this. If you're in search of this, it isn't a low self-esteem. It's a high self-esteem is the issue. It's a major issue. Um, how about uh, flattery? It, is ultimately deadly. We looked at that, Proverbs 26. We've looked at those verses before. But let's look up. um, God hates flattery, nothing more than specialized lying. James answered that. Flattery is a subtle and deadly tactic of who? uh, Daniel 11, 32 to 34. Somebody read this. This is scary. This is scary because if you're a flatterer, be very, and if you're searching for flattery, look who you're in cohorts with here. Daniel 11, 32 to 34. Somebody read that for us. Go ahead, Tim.
Who's who's the passage talking about? Do you know? The Antichrist. He's a flatterer. That's how he dupes the whole world into the system. Satan, right? He's a flatterer. That's what he does. And James talked about it even, even in the garden. You see that. You see him flattering. He uses his, he's a double-tongued demon. That's what he does. Not only that, somebody read uh, Romans 16, 18. What is this? I just referenced it in a small way here in a second ago. But Romans 16, 18. Somebody read it. Who's got it? Who's got it? Who's he talking to, Romans 16? Who's, he, who's Paul writing to? Church. And he's talking about people in the church who are smooth talkers, flatterers, and the whole point of doing that is what? To divide the church, to be divisive. They'll say this about you over here, right? Let me tell you, let me show you what the flatterer does. Stand up, buddy. This is the flatterer. This is, this is what's Satan, right? This is the flatterer. This is, every time, you, if, you, if you are the flatterer, this is what you do. You smile. Well, you got the knife right here, ready and ready to stab him. That's what a flatterer does. He looks you in the eye, and he tells you how great you are, and he's got his knife right here. He's going to stab you in the back, right? That is exactly what, Paul, what Solomon is writing about in Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, about the flattering woman. She flicks the eyelashes. She puts on the perfume. She fills the naive. Notice that's how the people in the church are described, the ones who are seduced by the flatter. They're naive. They lack wisdom. They lack judgment. There's the naive man that Solomon talks about. He sees through the lattice. He walks by the red light district. There's all the flattering woman out there talking their sweet talk. And what? They come. He comes into her. He lies with her. He commits, a, he commits immorality with her. And then Solomon compares it to what? like a deer caught in the noose who has an arrow shot through his liver and he doesn't even know it. Let me tell you, I've shot deer through the liver. It's a slow and agonizing death. Scary. Yeah, that's what the flatterer will bring. Very, very scary. So if you're searching for that, that's what you're ultimately searching for because that's all you will get. That's all you will get. Um. Paul is clear that those involved in flattery are not servants of Christ. That's Galatians 1.10. And then, of course, Romans 16.18, which we just looked at. Um, Jesus spoke of the scary and seductive nature of seeking the praise of men and how it actually hinders people from what? Just somebody read John uh, 12, 42 to 43. If you want to see how scary, seductive speech and looking for it, looking for flattery, looking for praise, it, it will not only lead you to sexual sin, and of course, we don't need to be too uh, crass here, but men, you know how susceptible you are if you are the one who is drawn to personal praise and that good-looking girl at the office starts to praise you. Man, you are wide open to taking it to the next level. So you see how if you're that person who longs for that, who looks for that. <laughs> I, I hate to sound negative. But if your love language is words of affirmation, remember last week how scary that is? If your love language is words of affirmation and your wife is not giving, filling your love tank, 
But the young little girl at the office all of a sudden starts coming by and saying, man, you look like you've been working out. Wow. All of a sudden, what? My, my love tank's being filled. Can we talk some more? And there you go. Down the road you go. You see how scary that is? So you see how, again, this is where this is so practical, man. This is why the picture I sent you this week was so, is so important. You do not kill sexual sin at the computer, pornography, uh, masturbation level. That's not where you kill it. You can't kill it there. It will not die there. You have to kill it at the heart, idol, motivation level, right? So if you're the guy who's searching for that, who needs people to tell you how great you are, rather than like Paul, like Christ, who sought the approval of God above men, as he says in Galatians 1.10, that should be our heart desire. I don't care what you think about me. I only care what God thinks about me. That's it. That's what should drive. If that, if that could be us, we wouldn't have to worry about this. We wouldn't be seduced into this. Because it wouldn't matter what the, what the girl says. Thank you. And you'd move on, right? Because it really doesn't matter what she thinks about me. It only matters what God thinks about me. See, if you kill it there and you kill that sin of seeking the praise and the approval of men, listen, talk, not to make it too directly about me and my, and my ministry as a pastor, but can I tell you one of the biggest downfalls of preachers? Is because they live for the approval of men. So why in the world would I ever preach a negative sermon, which most of the material in Scripture as it pertains to the gospel is negative? Why would I preach that? Because that's not going to gain the approval of men. That's not going to gain your praise if I you know, talk about how sinful we are, right? That's why the church doesn't do it today. Because most guys are searching for the approval of men. But the faithful men are saying, I'm going to search for the approval of God, and therefore I've got to preach every word, whether it's positive, negative, or whatever. That's the difference. See how that even guides faithfulness in, in the ministry and pulpit. Now imagine in your life. So important. Who's got John 12? Go ahead, Jim. Do not, be, do not be people who are hung up on words, studies, or words. Context defines everything. When he says many believed in him, that is not salvific. That is not salvation. Okay? These are one of these passages. I, I don't have my Bible open, but I guarantee if I, if I did, I would have in the margin believing unbelievers. What does that mean? That means they knew who he was. They could see it, but they were not committing themselves to him. Why? Why would they not do it? Think about the stupidity. Think about the lunacy of that. Why would you not? Yeah, he's the Messiah. Look, he can, he can raise the dead. He can heal the sick. But I don't want anybody to know that I, that, I, that I believe in him. I'll be put out of the synagogue, which basically means what? I'll lose my authority. I'll lose my position. I'll lose my accolades. I'll lose, you know, the praise of men. Listen, the search for the flattery, the search for praise, this whole self-seeking glory hinders people even in the gospel. Scary. Yes. Yes. Yep, because he, he didn't want to be outed. And Jesus told him really clearly, what? You're not saved. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? 
You have to be born again. And Nicodemus says, we know you're the Holy One of God. No one can do what you do, right? And Jesus said, yep, you know who I am, but you're not saved. You need to be born again, right? Thankfully, by the end of the story, we see Nicodemus no longer afraid to come at night. What? He and Joseph Arimathea are the only ones. Fast forward now. The apostles all go and hide, and the guys who hid in the beginning, they come out. And they're the two that are there taking Jesus down off the cross. That'll preach, right? They, they came through. And what a blessing by God's grace. So, uh, yeah, so flattery. So, again, at the end of the notes there, I got to fast forward. What kind of impact on fighting sexual sin would happen if we were to regularly repent of those heart motivations that seek the praise of men? And if you did the notes, if you did the study, you saw how after every one of these sections, I go back and I ask you this question. How, how much better we would be in the fight with sexual sin if we would just repent regularly of this issue? Again, I'm trying to show you this is how you fight it at this issue, this heart issue. All right, let's move on. Number four, another motivator that can drive us to search for sinful satisfaction is the desire for power and control. Read these passages and explain why seeking to exercise self-control over another person is sinful. Let's just look at them for the sake of time. What, what, um, why is seeking to gain power and control over another person sinful? You tell me. Looking at the passages, you should know most of these. Okay, yep. You're, you're becoming God, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Galatians 5, one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Self-control. And the person that seeks to control someone else is actually a person out of control. Is that interesting? That's the deceptive, the, the, Second Timothy, uh, the Second Timothy 3, 12 and 13, where he says evil people will go on uh, deceiving and being deceived. I mean, it, it happens all the time. People are self-deceived, right? They think they're the controller and they're actually out of control. It's ridiculous. Why else would it be sinful? A person that seeks to control another is a person that has stopped serving the other we are commanded to serve one another not control one another we are commanded romans 12 to outdo one another in showing honor we're commanded to love one another controlling someone else is opposite antithetical to all of that we're commanded to keep no records of wrong We're commanded to give of ourselves. We're commanded to think of others first. And power and control does totally the opposite of that. How might the desire for power and control over another manifest itself in the life of a hungering heart? What might that look like? How might might that be present today? Or what might that look like if if you have this um, desire, this motivation in your heart for power and control over people. What, how might that come out? What might be a sign of that, a manifestation of that? Tell me. Okay, now, since you, since you brought it out, brother, and now, 
we're going we're gonna to move from Frederick because we beat him up enough, and we're going to go to Buddy now. <laughs> so, absolutely, and I, and I would do the same thing. So, Buddy, how would you go about doing that, though? Let's get specific, I mean, without being gory, but, like, how, there's a specific word I know you're going to use. How would you do that? What would you do to your wife to, to, to get her to do whatever it is you're thinking? Yes, so making her feel like she's not doing her job, not and doing, I'm not doing my job because you're not doing your job. Yes, and it's, really, uh, it's your fault. Control. Yes, yes, manipulate. That's it. That was the word. You will manipulate her, and oftentimes, especially in a Christian home, you get you'll guilt her, which is all a form of what passive, aggressive. Husbands do this all the time. Passive-aggressive, right? It's a silent treatment, longer hours at work, and then it eventually comes out, and it's like, well, you know, you're not doing this. You know, the food's been cold, the nights have been short, or whatever, right? And you just lay it on thick, and it's like it's... Yes. Yep. 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 Yeah. Scary. Yeah. 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 We've all... We've all scary. Yeah. And I was thinking about even, even what you said, but when she was not happy at home, yep. there was all, the, going back to the whole complex nature of the heart, the other issue with that is she wants to control her husband. Yes. She wants to make him feel that he has done something wrong. And it backfired on her big. But yep. that's, I don't, that wasn't necessarily mentioned as much. No. But, but, but you could see it. Yeah. It's, it's the picture of the roots I sent you guys this week and um, dealing in this afternoon and counseling with an individual about this. The complexity of our hearts is it's rare that it's one sin that's driving whatever the sin is, right? It's rare that it's one idol. Just like those roots, there were, there were six trees in my front yard. There were four within about a 10-foot circumference, right? Three maples, which are disastrous, for roots, right? They stay up on the ground. It's their leg breakers. And this nasty old pine tree. And all the roots, you know what they did? They all grew together. I'm pulling them out, and it's like they're all intertwined, like glued together. They grew together. It was a nasty mess. And I'm, again, I'm sitting there going, this is so clear with what our hearts are like. So it's rare that it's, I, I have this motivation of power and control. It's this motivation of power and control gets intertwined with what? Self-pity. That's what he was just saying, was self-pity. And then over here, it's anger because I'm not getting whatever it is I want. And it just keeps welding itself together till it eventually comes out in whatever it comes out. So why is that so important to identify all of these motivations? Because that's what chapter 7 is all about. Why is that so important in fighting sexual sin, but all sin? That you clearly identify what's going on in your heart. As, as, a, as a troubleshooter, I was raised as a troubleshooter. I was ra- from seven years old, I started working with my dad. It wasn't abuse, though I think it was probably more abuse for him that I had to go to job sites with him at seven. I'll never forget, he taught me how to hold the light one night. We were working at a Golden Corral at 11 o'clock at night, and there was this massive fight in the parking lot. And I mean, you know, I'm like 10 years old, and I'm like, man, there's a fight in the parking lot. This is pretty cool, right? And it's like 11 o'clock at night, and I'm holding the light for him. We're working on a freezer, and I just keep going looking at the fight. And, and my dad's hand goes like this, pulls the light back. And I go, <laughs> right? 
And I'll never forget it. Look, it, it etched in, in my mind. He taught me how to hold a light that night. I never knew there was a proper way to hold the light. And I'll never forget it. He looked at me and said, son, do you see these? And I said, yes. He said, what are these? My hands. I said, they're your hands. I, he said, here's what you do with the light. Wherever you see my hands, that's where the light goes. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. That's really helpful. I learned how to hold the light that night, right? So it's like I understand troubleshooting. So my dad taught me, because we did this all the time, and we made most of our money when we had our business going behind other people. They couldn't fix it, okay? They couldn't fix the problem. That We were known for that. We did tons of consulting, big systems, hospital, all over the place. And they would call us in when nobody else could fix it. And my dad taught me, and he would show me how to follow the trail, follow the fingerprints of the last person. And he'd say, yep, you see where they went? They went here, they replaced this, they replaced this, they replaced this. Here's the problem. They were two steps away. This happens all the time when you're fighting sin. You go here and you think that's it and you stop. But you got to keep digging. You got to keep killing. You've got to keep replacing. You, this is wrong, deal with it. This is wrong, deal with it. This is wrong, deal with it. Until eventually you purge out You'll never purge it all out, but you purge out what you see. And all of a sudden, you start to see that sin, whatever it is, that primary surface sin, it starts to die. Why? Because you've cut the root that's been motivating it. You've cut the life source to it. So that's why this is so important. When you see these, these, these uh, the, t the book, Dr. Street calls it mapping, where these idols, these motivations, they map on top of one another. You've got to identify all of them. And that's why chapter 7 is so important. And so here, power and control drives sexual sin on multiple levels. How, how specifically, though, and, and this is gross and sad but real, how specifically do we see this manifested in a wicked way today? This is very common. Where somebody who has, the, who ha, who has a, a desire for power and control and that motivates sexual sin. Human trafficking is one, absolutely. What else? Think Think just even more realistic. He, think even happens all the time even here with just people dating. Rape. What kind of rape? Date rape. Date rape. Yes, position of authority. Yep, yep. I mean, you could see how it comes up, but you slip a little what into the drink. You slip a little narcotic into the drink. It happens all the time, especially girls, Right? Where the guy will be out and he'll slip a little thing into the drink. She passes out. She gets drunk. Or, 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 or let's just go back a few years. Some of you are a little older like me. They didn't have some of the drugs they have now where you just slip it into the drink and it does it all for you. Then it was get the girl drunk, right? Get the girl high. And then she's not thinking. And you have power and control over her. And now, you can, now you're motivated and you go right on in, right? Scary. Sad. Awful. This stuff happens all the time. Now, Genesis 39. I was hoping to leave some time for this, and we did. Genesis 39. We haven't even touched this yet in our study, and I couldn't let it go any more weeks without looking at this. Somebody look up Genesis 39. Well, I'll, I'll look too as well. Somebody tell, who, who, who are we looking up? What is this passage? This is the infamous passage that you should know forwards and backwards. Yes. Do you think, now, do you think Potiphar's wife, I'm glad we don't know her name, but do you think that she, 
Was it motivated by power and control? I mean, you see it right there. She is trying to seduce him. She is trying to manipulate him. She is trying in every way. She's the wife of Potiphar, right? She's got the position of power and authority. And Joseph, our man, does not break under it. I love it, right? Somebody start reading. Uh, Let's see here. Somebody start reading. Somebody just start reading at verse 8 and read. uh, Wait a minute. I'm in the wrong book. That's why it didn't make sense. I'm like, (laughs) that doesn't look right. I know you guys have never done that. Um, Somebody, uh, yeah, somebody start reading. Yeah, verse 6. Thank you, James. Somebody start reading verse 6 and read down through verse uh, 12, uh, verse 10. Man, this passage is so helpful in, in what we're doing here and even what we're talking about in this motivation, but in the overall study. So I had in your notes here, I wanted you to read this passage, and I wanted you to explain some major lessons from this passage that will help you guard your heart from falling prey to the seduction and the power of control of others. What are some lessons you can learn from Joseph here? Listen. Let me just tell you this one, and this will get you excited and set up, and you can pull some out. There's many. Do you remember, do you remember Psalm 51, verse 4? Psalm 51 was the Psalm of David, the repentance after Bathsheba. What does David say that is so awesome in Psalm 51? It's going to come up in Sunday sermon as I talk about true repentance and false repentance. And what is one of the biggest statements that David makes, that, that earmarks, that identifies his repentance as true and genuine and pleasing to the Lord? What does he say? I have sinned against you and you alone. Now that's after David sins with Bathsheba. What does Joseph say here? Notice, it's he hasn't sinned. He, this is why this is so helpful for us. You don't have to go through it to know how to fight against it, right? I don't need to stick my head in a sewer pipe to know that it stinks, right? So don't think that. Well, I haven't experienced it yet, but until I experience it, then I'll know how to fight it. That's ludicrous, but many people think that. So here's Joseph, and he does the same exact thing that David did that identifies David's repentance is true but he does it ahead of it it's his guard versus his response joseph is the positive on the front side and it protects him and it's what how can i do this wicked sin against god he is saying he's just talked about the master how great the master is notice if you're reading it it almost makes you go wait a minute he's been talking for three verses about how great 
Potiphar is and how much Potiphar has given him. And so if you're reading the verse, you should be, how, should I, how can I do this great wickedness against Potiphar? That's not what he says. He says, how can I do this great wickedness against my God? Listen, men, that is a massive lesson of protection when you're fighting any sin. One is to identify it as what? What does he call it? Wickedness. He has a clear view of what she's wanting from him. He's not clouded. He's not deceived. He's not a person searching for flattery. She's after him. He's handsome. She's being seductive. He's not worried about that. He, does it. he sees right through it. This is wickedness, and it's wickedness against who? Not even Potiphar, against God. Do you see how it's a protection around him? That's two I gave you. What else? Yes. Yes. He perseveres. He endures. It's, it's 1 Corinthians 10 all over again, right? When you're tempted, right? Don't fall into self-pity and say, oh, this is not happening to me. No, when you are tempted, know that God is faithful to provide you a way of escape that does not mean a way out of it. The escape is through it. And that's why 1 Corinthians 10 says what? That you may endure it. And there's Joseph. He endures day after day. Listen, if we're honest, most of us, most of us would not be ready for that. Let's be honest. And why is that? Joseph doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Think about it. Go back to the glory of Christ. He doesn't have the written word. Like He didn't have the scriptures. Think about it. He's a man. He's just an Israelite who has the oral tradition in his head that he was taught. He has no verses. He has no Bible he can go back and memorize and read. He has no stories of people. He has nothing. And he has no Holy Spirit. And we say, well, we, we could never get through that. How sad is that? That's where we are today in the church. That's pitiful. That is awful. To whom much is given, much is required. Listen, as you go through the storyline of Scripture, every time you get closer to us, more responsibility, more responsibility, more res Why? Because we're given more. We are given more than Moses ever had. We are given more than David ever had. We're given more than Joseph ever had. It's unbelievable. And we say, well, we could never go through that. Well, that was them. Are you kidding me? We have no excuse. None. And yet he perseveres. Why? Because he has the right view about sin. He has the right view about God. And he perseveres. What else? Yes. I wrote the same thing, Rob. That's spot on. You nailed it, right? He is refusing. He won't even get close. Again, let's be practical. Let's be applicable here, right? It's the girl at the office or whoever, right, in your sphere, thinking of the sexual sin that flatters you, and you just keep talking to her, right? It's like, not Joseph. He, he went out of his way, right? Hey, is Potiphar's wife in there? Okay, I'm not going in the house. 
You know, I mean, that's what, that's what he's seeing. He's refusing. He's not around her. He's not. And then when he is around her, like you said, I like it. La, 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 right? Fingers in the ear. I'm not listening. Yeah, because you, you nailed it. I didn't have that down, Rob, and that was good. Our problem is, this, and I get, this, I get this question more than I should, right? How close can I get, Pastor? How close can I go? It's like my daughters talking to them about dating and stuff. It's like, no, 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 the, the line is here. Yeah, but Dad, that's still not, the, no, no, the line is here. We don't, we don't get close to the line. We don't even get close to sin, right? We stay away from it. We're not even close. And you, that's a good point, Rob. He, he stays away, right? Yes, that's, that's another one, right? When he is trapped, because that will happen, and Satan will do his deal, and his people will do their deal, and that's reality. And even then, he doesn't give up, right? He flees. This goes right back to 1 Thess- Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. I remember when I was in uh, Malawi, Africa, preaching, and I preached that passage. Sexual immorality is such a problem in, in especially southern Africa among the tribes because of how they were uh, all the false teaching and the witch doctors even in the churches and the pastors will go from hut to hut sleeping with everybody's wife it's it's unbelievable and scary and so there i am preaching hundreds of pastors and i preach and i pick that passage what flee sexual immorality right driving that and that's literally that word picture going right back to joseph right this whole reality you got to run away from it you got to run away from it, and that's another one. What were you going to say, Jim? So then, um, the world will conspire to pull you in, uh, and and then just rip you apart if you even get close to the line. So, an, an example uh, recently, and I experienced this even even in my own workplace, is how the press reacted when certain Yeah, absolutely. Do you make a rule for yourself that says, I will not go on travel? Not even close. Yeah. Alone with yep. a woman? Yeah. When you get back, you're turned down. Yep. Right? Yep. And you get talked to by your manager. Or, mm-hmm. and it, it becomes um, worrisome after mm-hmm. a while. Mm-hmm. It's on God. He's been experiencing that from his very youth when yeah. he was thrown yeah. to die. And now he's in another situation where it's like, I mean, you read the passage and and um, uh, even Potiphar is setting him up for failure by saying, you know, I 
Yeah, you're going to bless me. And so even as a man, you, you, you hear those things, and again, going back to the Process. I deserve yeah. something, you know, yeah. now here's Potiphar's wife. Yeah, sure. I, you know, Potiphar elevated me to this position, so now I should Why not? Be Why not? Yeah, but if you continue to keep that mindset that God is faithful, God has put me in this position to bring me to this position, then he goes to jail and God comes right back and yep. shows him favor with the jailer. So that's what you, I'm really seeing Good. the story is that relationship His faithfulness. between him and God. Yeah. Well, that was another one of the things I wrote down. The verses about Potiphar, what you see from that is, is Joseph clearly does not have the self-rewarder motivation. Do you see it? Think about it. I've done all this for Potiphar, which he had. I've done all this for the nation, which he had. Surely I can now take a little dip for myself. He doesn't have that, right? Notice when he's talking about Potiphar and he keeps talking about Potiphar, what Potiphar has done. He clearly understands what James said a minute ago. I don't deserve this. This is what my earthly master has done for me. I don't deserve you. You're his wife. Again, you can see how he doesn't have that. He doesn't have that subtle motivation. His heart was settled. Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, Caleb. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Man of he's all of his uh, suffering in prison has made him a man of conviction, which again that's part of it when you think about what the Lord took him through. He, he was a man who was crushed, beaten, bruised. I mean, he's in Egypt as a Hebrew. He knows nothing. He don't know where his family is, right? Yeah, he's been blessed while he's there, but still, imagine he's an alien. He's confused, and yet, even in spite of that, he doesn't say, well, God wasn't faithful to me, so I'm not going to be faithful to him. He could have easily done that, right? My brothers left me for dead, and so, so what? But he holds on to faith. Go ahead. Yeah. So unperceptive, imperceptibly. Yeah. A comment here, a word here, yep. eye, eye contact here, and then it's got momentum. Yes. And I would say if I was with those men, you saw it coming. <laughs> Here's what you didn't do, right? As I'm a pastor, so I, I have authority to speak on this as somebody who deals with it all the time. I mean, my own heart. It's those little sins you didn't confess. Those little sins which we've been studying, right? It was because you enjoyed the flattery of the woman who looked at you, right? You enjoyed the praise that she gave to you, which is all sin, right? And you should have been confessing that. 
And again, remember what I've said from the, from the beginning. When a man falls in sexual sin, he doesn't fall far. You may not see it coming, but it's been building up. It never happens like that. It's not how it works. It always is a stepped process, right? And, and especially with pastors. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't buy into that. They might not have seen it, but it was coming. It was coming. It was seed sown in their heart, pride, arrogance, again, all the things we've been learning. Well, what's that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's built into it when he says, how can I do this wickedness against, against my God? All right, man, it's time to go. I didn't get to get to the last page. I apologize, but I, I had to preach a little bit tonight, and I, forgive me for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I'm working on, I haven't gotten very far in the notes for next week, so I've been really busy, but, but pray for me and give me, give me some grace. I'll get those out as fast as I can. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for your faithfulness, as James was just saying, your faithfulness to us, Lord. Thank you that your promise to us, for those of us who truly believe, you have promised to get us blameless to the end that you will do your work in purifying us, sanctifying us as we continue to be faithful to you. Thank you for that great promise that you will preserve us as we persevere to the end. Help us, Lord, to stay faithful in fighting for purity as we focus on Christ. That's our desire. That's our goal. That's our joy. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of this class and the encouragement of these men. Bless each of their lives, each of their homes, each of their wives. For the glory of your name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brothers. Well, we couldn't leave you at the end without giving you a very clear gospel message. In Romans chapter 3, roundabout verse 23, simply says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The thing about it is God is holy and we are sinful. Uh, verse 23 says, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So the thing about it is when we realize that we're sinful and that God is holy, uh, then we are in the place where we understand that we by ourselves cannot do anything for our salvation. We have to completely and fully rely on God because there's no way that we can adopt ourselves into the family of God. And what God does is he sends his son in the form of flesh and he lives the perfect life, fulfills the law completely and has become our righteousness and has died for our sins in our place. The judgment and propitiates. Uh, that's what uh, the, that big word in in verse 25 says. It's the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And that's the last part. We have to have that faith. We have to repent and believe and then walk by faith in him and believe and understand that we are his and that uh, he has provided a way for us to see that holy God. Thank you all for tuning in to the Truth Talks podcast. Once again, if you want more information on how to join our Bible study, 
and this is open to all churches. This is not just open to the men of our church. This is open. We have a bunch of different uh, churches that have actually been showing up week by week. Pastors as well that have been showing up because it's not about uh, the pastor or the church. It's really about the word of God. And that's what is being uh, is being presented and what's prevalent. But please email us at info at bellcroftbiblechurch.org. Once again, that's info at bellcroftbiblechurch.org. Thank you all for tuning in. And uh, also, you can follow us on Instagram. Uh, the Truth Talks podcast is on Instagram. You'll get updates about what's coming out and uh, where we're going. So please follow us on Instagram if you're on Instagram. Uh, some of us not are not, but it's okay. Uh, but we do have a, uh, a place, a landing spot where you can look for us. Thank you all for tuning in. Take care. Delighting in the word that we might walk in the truth. A ministry of Bellcroft Bible Church.